0: It is filled with the praises of God's people. So, isn't it nice to know that what we lift up here is up in heaven, filling the nostrils of God as a pleasant aroma to Him? Isn't that wonderful? Um, I wanted to share with you just briefly a uh, from an email that I got from one of our missionaries that was here last weekend. Um, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. This comes from Fledge Fiamingo. He was part of Sun Safaris. He's the fellow that had the South African accent, and uh, I'll just give you a little snippet of what he wrote. He said, Most of you have served in ministry way longer than me, but in my 20 years, what I have experienced this weekend, I have never experienced before. As I have mentioned, when I have asked to share a sporting organization, it takes our time and money to get there, and we're allowed 30 seconds to two minutes to share. At times, this is disheartening, and I'm always thankful for the financial support, but I miss the relationship building. He goes on to say that you have elevated these ministries to a new level, and truthfully, I have never felt more welcomed and more encouraged than what you provided for us this weekend. He says, and they're always—sorry, um, I'm skipping on down here. I made some magnificent friendships just in the last two days, and I'm thankful that I can be in the trenches uh, with you for so many who are doing so many great things for the kingdom. For me personally, last thought here, the past 48 hours have encouraged revitalized and rest in my heart to know that there are loving people that are willing to hear what the beautiful feet on the ground are actually doing. Isn't that wonderful? Give, give the Lord a praise in yourself as well. And yes, I have upgraded to an iPhone. So I'm, I'm glad now that I can actually text people a thumb instead of the words thumbs up. So, um, Our text for today comes from Colossians chapter 1, yeah, Colossians chapter 1. We'll get to that here in just a minute, but I want to give you just a little bit of introduction uh, about Colossians, and one of the things I have held off from doing, but I think today would be an appropriate time for us to do that is to talk about these antagonists or these opponents of the Christians in Colossae. Because these folks have been getting it from, from other folks uh, locally. And so Paul is writing in a response to some of the arguments that they've been hearing that have been confusing. And so um, I've got a slide for you here that shows some of... Uh, some verses that key us in or clue us into who it is that have been badgering or berating the Colossian Christians and giving them a tough time and I think that it is distinctly a Jewish group of people that are doing this, and about as many commentaries as there are out there, there are opinions about who these antagonists or who these opponents are, but I think that it it was and all of them though will agree to some Uh, Extent that these were Jewish people who were prodding and poking at the Colossian Christians. Um, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, for example, says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And so Paul is referring there, when he talks about philosophy, he's talking, talking about a logical train of thought, people who have put... Uh, state thoughts together in a logical framework that are convincing. And they're trying to convince you that what you believe is not really what is true. And so, if you look at, again, that slide in chapter 2 and verse 16, for example, um, Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. These are dietary um, constraints or dietary arguments that Paul is referring to here. And who were the people that had dietary restraints and dietary arguments? Well, they were Jewish people. And so, it's a distinctly Jewish person who would have been making that point to the Colossian Christians and then upsetting the apple cart there. Still in verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festivals. The Jewish people had all sorts of times of the year when they were supposed to make certain offerings, uh, give sacrifices for praise, all these sorts of things, these festivals. And then the new moons, the whole Jewish calendar was set on the cycles of the moon. And then finally, he says, and the Sabbath. I mean, that is a distinctly Jewish Uh, term, uh, the concept of Sabbath. I mean, other pagan religions didn't have that same terminology. And so Paul referring to the Sabbath makes you think that the folks that have been upsetting these Colossians were indeed Jewish people, not Jewish Christians, but just Jewish people. Um, And so these opponents of the Colossian Christians, uh, these Sunday school Jewish teachers, these elders in their synagogue would probably go home to their families and they would share with their family their disapproval of these local Christians who want to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, who want to claim that they are part of the children of God, that that they are part of God, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they are part of his children. They're like, no, you're not. You don't observe our festivals. You don't observe our, our, our dietary laws. You don't observe any of those things. Of course you're not part of the children of God. And so that's what the Jew- local Jews have been saying to them. Look on down at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ. So Paul is acknowledging here that circumcision has become an issue amongst the Colossian Christians. And who would it have possibly been that would have got, got them thinking in that direction? Well, of course, it was their local Jewish uh, uh, people. Um, so, so you know, here comes these questions, and these Jews are trying to tear their faith down, trying to tear their faith apart, and so the confusion and the doubt that follows. And Paul is writing his letter to try and shore up, to try and build up the confidence that these Colossians have in their faith in Christ, as Paul has taught it to them. Um, our text for today comes from Colossians chapter one. We'll be reading verses twenty-four. 29 and chapter 2 and verse 1. So three verses. I'm gonna ask if you would to stand to your feet, rise to your feet for the reading from God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. Here we go. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's walk into these verses together. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Let's stop right there. Paul is drawing attention to the fact that he has been suffering on behalf of the gospel. This is a well-known fact. Paul's suffering is of the stuff of legend. I mean, he's experienced so much has come his way, and the local churches in Colossae and Laodicea and these other churches that Paul has never even visited before are very aware of the suffering that Paul has experienced on behalf of the gospel. Paul writes about some of what he has had to endure in his second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23 he writes. um, He says, I've had to endure imprisonment countless beatings, and often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 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 forty lashes, less one. So the, the lashes that the Lord Jesus experienced at the whipping post just before he'd be put on the cross, Paul says he experienced that five separate times. He says three times, verse 25, I was beaten with rods, that is, he was flogged. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. Verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jewish people. Verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So the sheer volume of what the Apostle Paul, he could go on, I'm sure, right? Uh, But the sheer volume of what the Apostle Paul could report in terms of the suffering that he has experienced is, we might say, unmatched. Others have been attacked. Others have been treated with hostility. Others have even been martyred for the faith. But Paul has experienced and will experience all of these in a constant onslaught that has sustained itself over many, many, many years of Paul's public ministry. Um, the knowledge of this has turned Paul again into some sort of a living legend where Christians everywhere, whether they've, he's ever visited those churches or not, know about the Apostle Paul and what he has had to endure. Um, Even now, the Apostle Paul writes this letter while in chains. He's waiting for his trial before Nero Caesar. Um, And so this church, like many other churches, know that Paul has been doing this, he says in verse 24, for your sake. He goes on to say at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1, For I want you to know, referring again to his suffering, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. I've got a map for you here. You all have seen this several weeks back ago. But this map shows um, Colossae. And if you look up the valley, uh, Laodicea is just a little ways up the valley. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. But the Laodiceans are experiencing something very similar. And he mentions them because he anticipates that this letter will be circulated to these churches and the surrounding towns. He says uh, back in verse 21, he says, and for all who have not, I'm sorry, verse 1, and for all who have not seen me face to face, referring there again to the fact that he's never been there and seen them in person. Again, all of this is for your sake, he says in verse 24. Paul is not doing this for his own acclaim. Paul is not doing this to bloat his own ego. Um, He's not doing this to fill some masochistic inclination. The purpose of his sufferings, the purpose of enduring all that he's had to endure, he says, is for your sake. The point of it all has been the spread of the gospel. And it's so that churches like the church at Colossae might exist. It's so that people who have never heard the name of Jesus might hear it and respond in belief, might be able to spend eternity with God in heaven, might be able to glorify the Lord Jesus with their lives. They might be able to live and follow after him. Paul says over in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, this was our theme verse last week, he said, how, will, how then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard, and how are they supposed to have heard of him uh, who, for, if somebody has never gone there to preach to them, somebody like me? So Paul is committed to being that person, to being an evangelist, traveling around the world, sharing the good news about Jesus wherever he can. Back to verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So we've seen that Paul has suffered. We've seen that um, all through the scriptures, Paul refers to his suffering. We know that Paul, why he's doing it, he's doing it so that the gospel can be spread, so that people have the opportunity to respond to Jesus. But what about this part about him rejoicing? He says, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. I mean, Paul, that seems a little bit strange. It seems strange to me. The word "rejoice" in the Greek is the word "kairo," and sometimes it's interpreted "glad" in the New Testament. It means feelings of elation or feelings of or gladness of heart. Paul says, "I am filled with joy on the inside. I am delighted. Why? Because of my sufferings for your sake." We noted just a moment ago that this is not to be confused with masochism. Paul does not find joy in suffering's sake. He says the reason. For his joy, it's not that he is, um, it's not that, again, he's suffering for suffering's sake. Rather, his joy is because he knows that these Colossians are hearing about the good news about Jesus. He's glad of heart because he knows that he is reaping souls for heaven. He knows that his suffering is producing a spiritual crop and churches planted and in the good news about Jesus going out across the world. And for this cause, for this reason, Paul is not only willing to suffer but rejoices in it, His suffering is connected to his labors for Christ. We see that correctly, right? Right? I know, throwing a lot at you already. And we've got more to come, so hang in there. Um, now, the last thing that I want to cover this morning is the second half of verse 24. This is one of those verses about which tens of thousands of pages of theology have been written. Uh, Bible scholars have so many different opinions as to what this verse means. I tried to consolidate them down into three different views, but there's many more than that. But I think the consensus would be that these three views are the different views of what Paul means in that second half of verse 24. Let's take a look. He says, In my flesh I am filling up what is life lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church. The question is, what does Paul mean when he says that Christ's afflictions are lacking? You can see where that would potentially be an object of debate. And somehow, Christ's afflictions, are they lacking? Well, one of the, uh, one of the views out there, and I'll, I think we got that for you. One of the views out there is the supplemental view, or what I call the supplemental view. Uh, this view holds that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to pay for your sins and mine, and that we need to add some penance, we need to add some suffering of our own to what Jesus did as well. Now, one of the ways that we interpret Scripture is with Scripture, if the Bible appears to be saying something in one spot and we run into it and we draw a conclusion from it, but then we go over to another spot in the Bible and the conclusion seems to be different, then we should, that should be like a red flag, right? That should be a stop sign to say, hold on here. We need to reevaluate what we just, uh, what we just read and the conclusion that we just drew. When examining other texts of Scripture on this subject matter, is the blood of Jesus sufficient or is it lacking? Here's what the Bible has to say. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, referring to the Messiah. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Now you notice that it doesn't say that Gordon was pierced for Gordon's transgressions. It doesn't say that Gordon was crushed for his own iniquities. And that upon Gordon the chastisement that brought Gordon peace was on him. And by Gordon's wounds Gordon is healed. No, it says that Jesus did all this work. The Messiah did all this work. My name's not in there at all. For example, over in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, this was the first time that the church leaders met to discuss and debate an issue of theology. And the issue that they were trying to decide upon was, are we saved by grace or not? Are we saved by the blood of Jesus, or do we have to add something else to it? Is there some sort of religious performance that we need to add into the mix? Um, And so, uh, finally, after days of deliberation, Peter stood up and settled the matter, and he said, Acts chapter 15 and verse 11, he said, we believe that we will be saved, listen now, through the grace of the Lord Jesus plus nothing else. Notice he didn't say through the grace of the Lord Jesus plus circumcision, through the grace of the Lord Jesus plus observing the law, through the grace of the Lord Jesus plus food and dietary issues, through the grace of the Lord Jesus plus observing the Sabbath or new moons or festivals. He didn't name any of those things. He said we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. That's it. There's no self-affliction that we need to add to the mix to become acceptable in God's sight. There's no religious hoops that we need to jump through. The hymn writer picks up on this when he wrote, Jesus paid it all. How about the other hymn writer who wrote, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Paul himself affirms being saved by grace alone, writing to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that is in what Jesus did on the cross. And this is not, I repeat, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, Verse 9, not a result of works or human effort or religious performance so that no one can boast. Paul is saying he doesn't want anybody walking out of the church on Sunday going, look at what I did to make myself acceptable in God's sight. Friends, we are completely dependent on what Jesus did on the cross. That's where we put our faith, our hope, our trust for eternity completely on what Jesus did on the cross. And if you're here this morning and you have never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ... This should be good news for you, that you don't need to have attended church X number of times, that God is not looking for you to put money in some offering plate, that God is not looking for you to do some sort of religious performance or jump through some sort of religious hoops in order for you to be acceptable in his sight. Jesus said it this way from the cross. He said, it is finished. You put your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and friends. Your eternity will turn on a dime. The Bible says it this way. You will be saved in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Something for you to think about. View number two. Number one was the supplemental view. I'm calling number two the tribulations quote of View. Uh, that's, just, that's just what I came up with. But anyhow, the Greek word for afflictions where Paul says what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is the Greek word thalipsis. And it's interesting that the word thalipsis elsewhere in the New Testament is typically translated tribulations. But in this occasion, the, the, the writers of the ESV and the writers of the NIV and the other uh, New Testament comment or series um, translated this as afflictions. And I don't know if it's because they were concerned that perhaps... People might misinterpret or misunderstand what happens here if that's what they were trying to do. But uh, the word really is the word tribulations. If I'm a Jewish person and I'm trained in Jewish schools, I would be keenly aware of what the Bible has long predicted, and that is that there will be an increase in suffering that would precede the end of the age. Um, I've got a slide for you here, and I've shared this with you before at our church. Perhaps this might be new to you, so let me just explain it very quickly. Uh, This is a timeline of human history. Uh, human history has a beginning and it has an end. That's a This is a biblical worldview. This is how the Bible sees the world. Uh, that there's a creation at the beginning of human history, and then there's the fall. That is when Adam and Eve sinned, and then human history goes along during the Old Testament period of human history, or what the Bible calls the age of the law. This is the laws of Moses. The part of the Godhead that's active here on the planet during that period is the Father, God the Father. He resides inside of the tabernacle, later the temple, and that back room called the Holy of Holies. Um, And then there's a little overlap period between the end of the first age and the beginning of the second. The beginning of the second age is inaugurated by Jesus's coming into the world. So Jesus comes into the world. He's the part of the Godhead that's active here on the planet during those 33 years of his life. But that second age begins, and it's what we refer to as the church age or the age of the Holy Spirit. That's the age that you and I live in now. And then finally, at the end of that age, our future, sometime off in the future, will come the end of time. That'll be the return of Christ. Now, there are some scholars who look upon Paul's statement in verse 24, that in my flesh, in his own body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's tribulations. To have, they've taken that to mean that Paul is attempting to complete some sort of divine quota of suffering that is necessary to inaugurate the end of the age. So that Paul is trying to bring suffering upon himself in an attempt to hasten the return of Christ. Because they saw that word tribulation in there, it kind of touched off in their mind, oh, we must be talking about the end of time, which that's not necessarily the case. You say, well, Gordon, you you completely lost me. (laughs) So I'm trying to think about, well, how do you explain this thing? And I don't know why, but for some reason, a bag of Cheetos seemed to explain it to me. Let me explain to you how a bag of Cheetos might explain this uh, deep theological thought. So when I was in high school, I could eat whatever I want in whatever quantity I wanted, right? And those were the good old days. Um, And so one of the things I liked to eat was a bag of Cheetos. And so I I, would—I love getting to the end of a bag of Cheetos. You, You know what's at the end of the bag of Cheetos, right? the little crumbly bits, right? The little crunchy stuff, and your fingers are all you know, cheesy with the cheese dust, and you get to lick your fingers off. And so I just love... And so I would power myself down through a bag of Cheetos just to get down to the little crumbly bits. You know, my mom had a hard time keeping food in the house because that's the way we operated, right? And so we ate for for the reward of the little crumbly bits at the bottom of the bag of Cheetos. My point is that with the Apostle Paul, with this, what some people want to say is that he's powering down through his bag of Cheetos, in order to get to the reward at the end, which is the return of Christ. So that's the tribulations quote. I know that wasn't the best illustration, but in, in any case, that's just what I came up with. So some scholars have suggested that what Paul is doing, that he was somehow in some cosmic sense adding to the quota, filling the quota, adding to the grand total of suffering that was required to bring about the end of the age. Now, there are some problems with that. First of all, and I'll just rattle these off really quick, three problems. Paul's audience, first of all, was not Jewish. You know, the people that he's writing to are not Jewish, so they would not have had this natural keen sense of the concept of tribulation and that there was suffering that had to occur leading up to the end of the age. So that's one of the problems. The second problem is that Paul believes it is the lot of all Christians to suffer. So why does the Apostle Paul feel like he needs to bring it all upon himself if that seems to be what he's saying here, that he's trying to fill up in himself what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, that doesn't seem to make sense. Instead, uh, suffering comes with a territory. And finally, thirdly, third problem is that the silly factor in all this, which is how could the Apostle Paul have even thought that his sufferings would possibly make a dent in the cosmic need or that's required for some sort of universal quota? And if he thought that there was a quota, then why wasn't he encouraging all Christians to go out and suffer? Why wasn't he telling them, everybody go out there and let, let's go take it. Let's go put a target wide open on our back and just get everybody piling in on us so that we can hasten the return of Christ. So those are the problems that I see with this. A third view, and this is really kind of where I land in all this, is partly because partly it's the least complicated of the views. Okay? I, I'm, I just don't think that these biblical writers were trying to be sneaky. I don't think that they were trying to write in a way that was so riddle like that we couldn't figure out what they were trying to say. And I know sometimes it may seem like that, but I I really do think Paul's intention was that we would understand what he's writing. And so, to that regard, this third view is what I call the solidarity view. Um, In saying verse 24, he says, In my flesh, if I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Um, I believe Paul is acknowledging that to be a Christian will result in suffering. I think that's what he's trying to say. He's not referring to Christ's afflictions on the cross. He's thinking more in terms of the body of Christ experiencing what Christ experienced. We're in solidarity with him. Um, It's kind of like when the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he saw the blinding light from heaven, and it was the Lord Jesus speaking to him, and he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm the one you're persecuting. Well, Jesus, I mean, Paul wasn't directly persecuting Jesus, was he? No, he's persecuting all the Christians. He was persecuting his church, and yet the Lord Jesus felt that himself. That's a solidarity view. Suffering is the natural byproduct of preaching the gospel to a hostile and pagan world. Paul said to his protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. Crushed but not crushed, we are perplexed but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Does that sound like a guy who thinks that suffering is not going to be the lot of Christians? He says in verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Jesus himself predicted the afflictions of his followers. He said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, part of the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He said in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Did Jesus think that his followers would be persecuted? Absolutely. Did he think that they would suffer? Sure he did. He says in verse 12, Rejoice, remember Paul was rejoicing, and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets, and so they will persecute you. I mean, if they did it to the prophets... God's prophets, you can expect they're going to do it to you as well. And so the image that Paul paints of Christ's afflictions points to our solidarity with him, that as Christ suffered, so we will suffer. May not suffer in magnitude, may not suffer in volume, may not suffer in kind, but indeed we will suffer as a result of following him. Um, All right, so that's the solidarity view. And with that, it's time for us to ask our most important question. You're like, man, that was... That's a lot. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot to take in. So, anyhow, a lot to chew on this morning. And so, our most important question is what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, you definitely got into the weeds this morning. And uh, for some reason, I feel like I want to stop on the way home at Striplings and get a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> Besides all that, what does this have to do with my life today? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I got two things for you. Two things. First is that word rejoice. I mean, how can Paul say, well, you, you saw the list of stuff. Five times he experienced the 30, 40 lashes minus one. one time he, three times he was flogged. One time he was stoned to death, or attempted stoned to death. Um, I mean, you think about it. The, the, the rocks, they hit him in the head. And they walked over to him and looked down on him and said, yeah, he's as good as dead. I mean, that's the condition he was left in. And he says, I rejoice in that. That seems an awfully... Awfully strange statement for somebody to make. And how about Jesus saying, "Blessed"? You know, the word "blessed" really could be interpreted happy or glad of heart. Jesus said, "Blessed are you when you're persecuted and when people revile you and say all sorts of false things against you." This just seems to be twisted. Seems a little demented to me. If I step back from it and give it an honest shake. You know, this morning I was on my way into church and it was early and the sun was still down. And I think most of you know that. I live down in the southern end of the county. Um, and so I was making my way north up this direction. And toward the south, though, of us is a big body of water known as? Uh, yes, yes, Lake Oconee. <laughs> okay, you've heard of it before. And so as I was on my way up, maybe I, you were still trying to process some of what I was sharing earlier. So as I was on my way up this way, so I got a 20-minute drive up here. Again, always heading north. And I saw this morning... Boat after boat after boat after boat heading that direction. And uh, so they were heading down toward Lake Oconee, I'm sure, maybe Sinclair. And uh, it was probably some Sunday fishermen that were thinking to themselves, they felt the warmth in the air, and they thought maybe the bite is on, right? And so that's, that's where they were heading, heading down there. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with fishing, and there is no sin in fishing on Sunday. Let me just say that for the record, okay? Um, however, it is not something that we want to make a habit of. The writer of Hebrews talks about that when he said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. As I said several weeks back ago, i got to a little caveat in here to that. I, do, I just do. Um, as he said, some, I said some weeks back ago, I've never known a person who had a close and personal, mature relationship with Jesus Christ outside of a regular engagement with a local church. I just haven't met that person. Um, yes, you can meet with Jesus on the lake. And yes, you can know him on the lake. However, um, while churches... Uh, Not missing church is not a sin It will not help you toward a closer walk with god either and the scriptures are pretty clear about that My point is amen. I got that from my dad The point is those guys that are heading down there to the lake. They were probably there last sunday Right I mean being honest and they'll probably be there next sunday and they'll probably be there through the spring And through as long as the bite is on they'll be coming back, but are they happy? Are their marriages strong? Are there children walking with the Lord? You know, you can try to find happiness in all sorts of places, but the Bible declares that true happiness, deep down on the inside, lasting joy, the kind of joy that is with you, not just in the moments when you're reeling in a fish, but the joy that lasts throughout the remainder of the day and into Monday and into Tuesday and the rest of the week, joy in the ups and downs of life, that that kind of lasting joy can be found in doing the will of God. And so for Paul, that meant suffering for the sake of these Colossian Christians and others like them. So that's the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine, that if we want joy, we want lasting joy, we need to discover God's will for our life and then go and live it. The second difference that this makes to your life and mine has a particular audience in mind. Now, I have for some months, this has just been on my heart, wanted to speak to our teenagers I wanted to speak to our middle school and high school students in particular. So moms and dads, if you got them somewhere around, say, hey, Pastor Gordon wants to talk to you. Um, and we're not going to do it down in his office. We're going to do it right here, okay? So the difference, and so talking to our students here, the difference between what we talk about in here and the values and the beliefs of the people out there is not lost on me. And it is not lost on Kenny, and it is not lost on the people that are around you in this room. We know that in what we proclaim here week in and week out, and the values of this text and the beliefs that this Bible presents us with, we know that you are being asked to live differently, much differently, than the world your peers have come to accept. And there is no harder thing for a parent or pastor than to ask their beloved children, or in my case, their flock, to leave this place and to buy into a book and in so doing to put a target on your back. That's the kind of thing, friends, that adults should have to deal with. But perhaps you more than anyone are being put in the crosshairs of where culture is changing the most. The question is, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? Here's what an immature Christian would do. They would compromise. They'd give in. They would accommodate the culture. They would bend God's rules for holy living and right belief in order to keep the peace and in order to stay popular. Would that be right? Is that what Paul encouraged the Colossian Christians to do? To say, hey, look, these folks are leaning in hard on y'all. And I know it's tough, the road that they're making for you. And so maybe it would be good for you to just relax some of our values. Relax some of what I've taught you. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul said at all. Instead, Paul said, rejoice in your suffering. Why? Because you know that in due time, it will result in a spiritual harvest your friends your neighbors your family members who don't know christ coming to christ because of your faithful witness might one day they might one day have the opportunity to know christ to follow christ to glorify christ and to spend eternity with him in heaven that's the sacrifice that you are making for his behalf let me remind you of what Jesus said about your suffering. He said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Blessed, say that word with me, Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he said, there's our word, rejoice, he said, And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. This morning, to close out our service, I'd like for us to do two things. One, I'm going to invite Kenny here in just a moment to come up, and he's going to pray for our students uh, before we receive communion. Um, And then also, I want to share with you just a, uh, really, I don't know if it's an essay or a statement that came from one of the commentaries I read this week. Um, It was from Dr. I'd have to see the last slide to get it to you. Garland was his last name. But it was just a very poignant statement about suffering and about what God is asking of us to do. And then the decision that we might decide rather to do, which is to just brush all this stuff aside, to sacrifice it, to compromise on it. And so he speaks into that. And so I'm just going to share this with you. It's a little lengthy, but I think you'll be glad for having heard it. Here's what Dr. Garland writes. He says, Christians today live in a secular society which regularly scoffs at Christian faith. Many Christians in the West have become increasingly uncertain of their faith and consequently hold it uncertainly. The acids of criticism can eat away at the foundations of a weak and vacillating faith. There are also fewer cultural forces to keep people in church. When confronted with the laughter and scorn of the modern-day scoffers, Nominal church members may be tempted to capitulate. They will abandon their faith or trade it in for the latest craze. In Paul's language, they return to the darkness where the rulers of this age hold sway. And finally, he says, When Christians do not understand their faith, they are likely to water down the gospel and accommodate it to the cultural expectations. They will cut out any offending articles of faith or append spacious ones, more in accord with the fashion of the age. I'm going to invite Kenny, if he would, come to close us with prayer. Let's bow our heads together.
1: Father God, we just thank you for this time that you've given us. God, I thank you for these students that are here day in and day out, three or four times a week. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ability that we have to know you. God, one of the the best truths we have in scripture comes right out of Genesis 127 that we are made in your image. God, we know we are yours. God, you tell us that. You tell us that we are loved. And God, thank you for that. I pray for these students that as they go into their schools, that yes, they look different, but that's not a bad thing, that they would be comforted in you, and God, that you would build people around them, that would let them know that they are yours, that they would just keep reminding them, to keep the focus on you, rather than anything else, God, I thank you for this time, I thank you for this church that you have built, where we can come to learn more about you, I just pray all these things in Jesus' name.